Welcome to this Legal Talk Network special report. I'm Luann Reeb. We're very fortunate to have with us today one of the champions in the legal profession, Attorney Joseph F. Rice, partner in the internationally known law firm of Motley Rice in the beautiful state of South Carolina. The Motley Rice law firm has five offices in four states, I'll have you know, and Attorney Rice is best known for his central role in crafting the landmark settlement on behalf of the state's attorneys general, in which the tobacco industry agreed to reimburse states for smoking-related health costs, resulting in the largest civil settlement in history. He's named as one of the nation's five most respected plaintiff attorneys in a poll of defense counsel and legal scholars conducted by Corporate Legal Times, and he's been cited time after time as one of the toughest, sharpest, and hardest-working litigators they have ever faced. As the article notes, for all of his talents as a shrewd negotiator, Rice has earned most of his respect from playing fair and remaining humble. In 2006, Rice was described by the American lawyer as one of the shrewdest businessmen practicing law. Well, I could go on and on with countless attributes, but I really want to get to our conversation with Attorney Rice today about one of the largest and undeniably historic cases in America— the litigation against big tobacco, the landmark settlement, and the results of that action that are still being felt today. Mr. Rice, I want to thank you so very much for your time today. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate you spending some time on this subject. Well, that's great. I want to take you back a little bit in time, and I know you've told this story before, but uh, the litigation in the big tobacco case is definitely one of the more significant in U.S. history and one of the most infamous stories ever told. Can you give us your overall perspective of the early stages and the development of that case? Oh, early on, it was a lot of creative um, legal work trying to come up with a theory that we could find a good, solid basis in um, the law to cure what we thought was a totally inequitable situation with um, tobacco companies making millions and millions of dollars a year in the state's funding the health care for the people that were getting tobacco-related diseases, and nobody could win in court on an individual basis. So um, it was it was a creative way to try to balance that playing field. Well, that's definitely, as, as we used to say in the South, pushing the rock up the hill. Um, now, you personally played a very significant role in this case against big tobacco companies as lead private counsel to the attorneys general in all the states during the negotiations, and you crafted that historic settlement. Now, you're dealing with attorneys general. You're dealing with big-time lawyers for tobacco. Can you give us a taste of what that was like? This this is clearly a David and Goliath case. What, what was it like then? Well, I was very fortunate in that I had my partner, Ron Motley, who was focusing on what was taking place in the courtroom, which freed me up to focus on what was taking place outside the courtroom and what could be done to try to come to some resolution. Um, we you know, slowly but surely earned the respect of the attorney generals to, that we were actually doing this litigation for the right reason. And um, so they developed some confidence in us. And as we started uniting the attorney generals, um, everybody started focusing on the kids, and, and it was all about the kids and the public health. So um, we turned it from a David and Kalia situation in the courtroom to a pretty balanced playing field at the negotiating table. Now, I have sort of a picture in my mind of what that must have been like. How many attorneys were at that table? Um, when we would meet with the tobacco companies, 
they usually had you know 20 or 30 people at the table uh, on their side. And um, early on, um, there were very few of us. And then we grew in numbers as more attorney generals started attending or they had their staff attending the negotiation. And then when the original federal legislation fell apart, uh, it got pretty lonely at the table again because I was by myself for a long time. <laughs> and then one or two attorney generals joined us, and then we built our stuff back up. Now, from a certain perspective, I will say that you literally, you among others, but you brought big tobacco to its collective knees in this country. Can you paint that picture on a personal level for us, what that was like for you? Well, it's very rewarding to to know that you've done something that's going to have, hopefully, a very positive impact on our future health of our society. However, it was no <clears throat> unilateral effort. Our law firm was certainly heavily involved, as was the Scruggs firm out of um, Mississippi. It was really the dedication of the half a dozen attorney generals that took a lot of time and spent a lot of time traveling um, to get behind it that gave us the um, the leverage and the the strength and the unity to you know go toe to toe with tobacco. Now the um, one picture that is is vivid in many of our minds because it was on television um, was the famous congressional testimony by the top executive, the CEOs of the tobacco industry, in which they all said under oath that nicotine was not addictive. Was that a moment in your mind that turned public opinion, at least in this case? I think that when they said that and then after the evidence started coming out, um, it truly became the symbol of, you know, the, the blind mice all, you know, covering their, their eyes and saying what they wanted to say without looking at the truth. And I think the people uh, started looking at that. And I think even the company started realizing that they couldn't defend what their testimony had been. But it certainly makes for a good, it made for a very good uh, picture to show them up there all swearing to something. And then we get the documents and they're telling their um, board directors and their internal corporate executives the exact opposite. Well, I'm sure even today they probably wish that tape wasn't around. I'm uh, sure. Now, how about the whistleblowers, such as Dr. Wigan? How did they uh, play an instrumental role in this in this story? You know, they were absolutely invaluable. Um, Dr. Wigan himself, he sacrificed a career. He sacrificed his family because he just realized that what was taking place was just not not what our whole country stands for. And, you know, corporations, are, it's a privilege to be able to, to function in our corporate world and our economy and our capital market. And to not be responsible with that privilege, he just found it was time for somebody to do something. So he was absolutely vital to um, getting the story out. And it's, you know, it's not just in tobacco, but in many areas. The people on the inside are the ones that really know. And unless they're willing to stand up for what they think is right, um, a lot of conduct gets pushed under the table that we never know about. Fortunately, in the tobacco situation, we had some whistleblowers that were prepared to come forward. That's been very, it was helpful, very helpful. But it was not without personal sacrifice on their part. Did you yourself have uh, interaction with Dr. Wigan back then? Oh, yes. Not as much on his knowledge, but on giving us some guidance on the focus that we should have in some of the public health um, changes we were trying to do in the settlement agreement. My partner, Ron, you know, spent a lot more time with Dr. Wigan on the science itself. 
That must have been an incredible um, camaraderie amongst Dr. Wygand and, and other people and uh, Ron Motley yourself, some others who, who we just don't have enough time to name really. Um, was that a, just an incredible strong bond that kept kept you guys going? Absolutely. It was a common bond. We we got into it. Um, Dickie Scruggs and Ron, you know, when they started working together on it, um, they had the same motivation. And when we got a little momentum going and we got some attorney generals and Attorney General Mike Moore who just stuck his neck out stuck his neck out there and said, you know, this is the right thing to do. Forget about politics. Forget about Republicans and Democrats. This is about the kids. And and so we got a momentum going. Mike helped us talk to some other attorney generals. And people put aside some of their own political issues and said, you're right. This is the right thing to do. Somebody's got to stand up to this industry and change something here. That's pretty amazing if you really stop and think about it. I want to ask you a question, sort of Hollywood kind of question. It's the only one I'll ask you about Hollywood. It's the movie The Insider, which I'm sure you've seen. It portrays parts of this story, um, uh, the litigation against big tobacco. Can you tell us two things? First of all, was the legal action part of that movie fairly accurate? And then what do you think it was that convinced Dr. Wigand to testify in Mississippi, which was a very, very courageous thing to do? Um, no doubt his testimony in Mississippi um, – Took a lot of a lot of guts, but the as far as the inside of the movie, certainly it was you know spiked up a little bit for Hollywood. But generally speaking, the legal action part was fairly accurate. Um, certainly, the courtroom scene uh, in Mississippi when Dr. Wigand's testimony was being given and um, Mr. Motley was doing the cross examination, those that section was verbatim on the transcript of the of the um, deposition itself. In other words, it acts as a drug. I object to the form of question. It acts as a drug on object the Object to the form. It acts as a drug. Object. Will you then go in here? Your objection's been recorded. She typed it into her little machine over there. It's on the record. So now, I'll proceed with my deposition of my witness. Does it act Dr. as a White, drug? Dr. Wagon, I am instructing you not to answer that question. In accordance to the terms of the contractual obligations undertaken by you not to disclose any information about your work at the Brown and Williamson Tobacco Company and in accordance with the force and effect of the temporary restraining order that has been entered against you by the court in the state of Kentucky. That means you don't talk. Mr. Motley, we have rights here. Well, you've got rights and lefts, ups and downs and middles. So what? You don't get to instruct anything around here. This is not North Carolina, not South Carolina, nor Kentucky. This is the sovereign state of Mississippi's proceeding. Wipe that smirk off your face! Dr. Wagon's deposition will be part of this record. And I'm going to take my witness's testimony, whether the hell you like it or not. Dr. Wigand, you know, he had gone, he got into this for the right reason, and he got comfortable dealing with, with Ron Motley, got comfortable dealing with Dick Scruggs and, Ron, and uh, Mike Moore. And when they were willing to stand up for him, we hired, his, you know, we hired counsel for him. And when we were willing to stand up with him, then that just gave him additional strength. And um, he came forward and, and did the right thing for the right reason. 
Well, we all got to all have to hope that there are people like him in other companies even today. I'm glad to hear that you could verify that part of the the, the movie, that part with Mr. Motley in the courtroom in Mississippi, Mississippi is my favorite scene in the whole movie. So I'm glad to hear that it was accurate. That was a, that was a pretty dynamic scene that day. Now, uh, change gears a little bit. When the negotiations first began, um, when you were involved, did the tobacco companies really think they were untouchable? Um. I think when we first started, when, when when I first started having discussions with some of their representatives, they thought I was crazy to think they would ever be willing to come to the table and do anything. And then after about three or four months, um, things were starting to heat up. More states were getting involved. We got some rulings in our favor. And they started thinking about, well, possibly, you know, this could get legs. And then when we did the first Liggett settlement, um, you can't underestimate the impact of having a member of the inside club um, break ranks and come forward and say, you know, we weren't around in the 60s and the 50s and the early 70s when this conduct took place, and we're not going to pay a penalty for it. We'll tell you the truth. You can have our documents. We want to go forward. We have shareholders that we have to protect, and we want to go forward and do the right thing. So when Liggett did that, um, then I think other members of the industry realized that we were going to prove our case. It was just a matter of time. That's a great point to point out is that one of them did step forward while everybody was waiting to, to see what would happen. Let me ask you a question about the settlement that you penned, which was monumental. Three, I think it was $368 billion in concessions and, and a lot of other things. Why that did, was the original federal, the proposed federal resolution that we would have done around 368 um, Unfortunately, when we got that into Congress, um, we couldn't push it through. Why do you think that is? It was it the lobby money. Um, I think it it became a number of things. We made a fundamental mistake because we did not involve the elected representatives early enough in the process, so that we didn't have a father to the, the to the bill itself. Um, so no one said it was theirs. Um, so what we had to do is bring, we brought it in and tried to find some people that said this is the right way to go. So that was a fundamental mistake we made. Um, the second thing is, because the number was so big, people said, well, another $10 billion here and $20 billion there is no big deal. And everybody kept piling on. And every special interest group um, started wanting a little bit of the money. The asbestos company saw it as a chance to try to get somebody to, to pay part of the liability they were responsible for because they were trying to get uh, money from cigarettes for the lung cancer-related cases that the asbestos defendants had paid. The farming industry tried to get money to supplement the farm programs. The medical area tried to get more and more money for medical research and medical changes. Um, so it, people just kept adding on and adding on, and it just died on its own weight. Hmm. But in the end, Big Tobacco was knocked off its pedestal through the litigation that you, your firm, and others and the attorneys general brought forth, in addition to their own what you might call ethical mistakes. One might call it that. Now, you were definitely the leader in the settlement uh, and the negotiations. You must carry that, you know, as such a good feeling as having done something that that really is it, we're benefiting from today. Well, let me start by answering your question. I was at the table with one of the private counsel, but I would have never had the chance to be at the table if it wasn't for the lawyers that were in the courtroom and for the, the actions that were taking place there, number one. And number two, 
the attorney generals, Christine Gregoire, Mike Moore, um, they, you know, Drew Edmondson from Oklahoma, Gail Norton from Colorado at the time, um, they stood up and took a lot of beating and a lot of heat to keep pressing forward. So I had a great team working with me. Um, I might have been the, the mouthpiece at the table, but I was certainly, you know, by no means working alone in that regard. And uh, you look back today, none of us ever imagined when we started on the what we call Plan B negotiations that we would have reached an agreement that every state accepted. Um, that amazed us. And uh, for that to become a national result, uh, it was just, you know, unbelievable that that, that, that occurred. And even today... Um, that's the closest thing we've got is to a national tobacco policy. It's not close enough. There needs to be some additional changes made. Um, but they, they've got to come from the legislature. They can't come from the, the courtroom anymore. Mr. Rice, let me ask you, in terms of other companies, other product manufacturers, do you think that this story was a lesson learned, not just tobacco, not just you know, food products, but any company that makes a product. Do you think this case, um, they're mindful, I guess is the best way to say that, mindful of this case in terms of their corporate responsibility? You know, I would hope so. Um, Unfortunately, we've seen some continued corporate conduct that's occurred that makes you wonder, what are these people thinking about in the boardrooms when they make these decisions? Um, Hopefully the, the... the corporate focus has turned away totally from profit to, you know, do business the responsible way. And that's what it's all about, be responsible. You're not going to be perfect. Nobody's going to be perfect. But, you know, do your your work in a responsible way and remember that there are humans out there that are impacted by your decisions and by your products, and they're depending on you. They rely upon you. They rely upon your integrity and your honesty. And if you don't put forward, then you should take a fault. Um We used to say, you can run, but you will not hide. Sooner or later, the truth will come out. Well, and I I think some would say that consumers latched onto this, too, because of firms like Motley Rice and attorneys general who showed great tenacity to make sure something happened as a result of what tobacco had done in the past. And in the late 90s, when this this all was settled, I guess we can only hope that there is some conscience that was built in corporate America as a result of this. And and I think that what we've seen in the last three to five years with corporate America through the, the Chamber of Commerce, you know, they've opened up their own newspapers. They go to small towns. They try to sway opinion by publishing their newspaper. They're starting to try to sway public opinion against the use of the courtroom as a a balancing act of our society. But if we didn't have the courtroom, you know, we'd still be driving around in pintos with bad gas tanks. We'd be having drugs that weren't tested. You know, kids would be smoking cigarettes on the streets day in, day out. So we just need to keep in mind that the courtroom and the right to a trial by jury and the right to exercise those is is fundamental to our system of fairness and justice. And it's a balance that we've got to keep. And we can't let the public opinion be swayed in the press. Um, because, you know, the person that spends the most money in that regard may win, and that's not the right result. So true. I have to ask you one last question, and, and, and we do this because we, we have a lot of law students as our audience here at Legal Talk Network. So I want to ask you, many um, 
say that lawyering isn't what it used to be. What what would be your message um, having experienced this case and many others with Motley Rice? What would be your message to young lawyers? Well, I had the opportunity to speak at the University of South Carolina Law School in the last month or so with my partner, Ron. And the message we tried to tell them, and the one I would tell to anybody, is don't underestimate the creativity that you'll bring to the practice of law. And the tools are there. You just got to learn how to use the tools. And the law is not stagnant. It should not be stagnant. It's based in the fundamentals of our society, and that's what needs to be done, is that you need to stay creative, stay focused, and make it work. That's great advice, and I know I know a lot of them will, will definitely listen to that. Anything else that you'd like to add to our conversation that I might have missed? No, I think we appreciate when you know, networks like yours decide to take an interest in, in subjects that are good for the people. Um, you know, I don't want to jump in the middle of the abortion um, decision by the Supreme Court, but the reality is if people don't start reacting, then the rights that we have in this country um, – and the way that we've our society's developed is going to change. And I'm not sure the changes that we're making today are changes for the best. So hopefully people will just stay involved, stay involved in the political process, and be sure the people that you're putting in the, the offices are going to make decisions for the right reasons. Well, your firm, Motley Rice, is uh, one of the most well-known firms for helping to bring justice to, to a lot of people who ordinarily couldn't fight against companies with big money. Um, any other recent cases that you'd just like to mention so that um, or, or your contact information for your firm? Well, we've um, certainly you know believe some of the pharmaceutical conduct that's taken place has to be you know, righted. Um, Ron and I truly believe in our motto that we litigate today for a better tomorrow, and we litigate causes and not just cases. And that's what we're trying to do. Uh, we are the only firm in the country that's actively pursuing the use of the court system um, to try to stop terror, stop the funding of the terrorists. Um, we've got our case against Arab Bank and Hamas. Uh, we've got the 9-11 litigation. So those are cutting edge. People tell us we're crazy. We'll never go anywhere with us. They told us the same thing when we started tobacco. I think finally in Rhode Island we've turned the corner on the, the lead industry and trying to uh, deal with the problems that the uh, lead-based paint brings to children and the high rate of, of lead poisoning in children, particularly in some of the less influential socioeconomical areas, and um, hopefully we'll make a difference there. So we're looking forward to continuing practice and to continuing to do things for the right reasons. Well, I want to thank you very, very much, Attorney Joseph F. Rice with the firm of Motley Rice. And if our listeners want more information, they can go to motleyrice.com and uh, all the contact information and a lot of good reading material is there. Again, Attorney Rice, thank you so very much for me and our audience for taking the time to be with us today on the Legal Talk Network. Thank you very much for your time.